The thunder on Sunday, little better chance for rain and thunder late Monday into Tuesday. I'm day weather meteorologist Don Watzel. AM 650 KGAB, Cheyenne's number one news talk radio station. You're in tune with the Weekend in Wyoming program here on um, a very somber, serious anniversary date. Of course, it's 20 years since 9-11. As my guest, I have Jimmy Orr. I've known Jimmy since the early 90s when he was Governor Press, uh, Geringer's press secretary. But you're here to talk about your experiences on 9-11-2001. You were working in the Bush White House. Tell us about it. Well, I, I don't want to start off, Doug, by correcting you, but I'm okay. going to correct you. When I first met you, uh, you were in Rock Springs, and I was working for Malcolm Wallace. That's right. So it would have been like... about that. It's been like been, more than 30 years. Yeah, it would have been <laughs> early 90s. I mean... We're old. <laughs> yes, we are. Uh, but we keep going. But we keep... Yeah, we're the Energizer Bunny. We yeah. just keep on going. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Doug, so... You know, what a day, you know, waking up this morning and realizing that it's been 20 years. Time flies. It really does. I mean, it's unbelievable, you know, to think that this was 20 years ago. And for me, I think like so many people, you know, it feels it feels like um, time stopped. Absolutely. And part of it feels like it was yesterday. Part of it feels, Doug, like it's a, it was it's another life. It's another completely different life i would echo each and every one of those sentiments i remember it as if it were yesterday and yet it feels like a lifetime ago yeah um we were chatting about this before going on air i was in northwest arkansas visiting family uh we went into a gas station my dad came out and said a plane had crashed into the world trade center and my my first thought quite honestly was very very sad and incompetent pilot in all probability but nothing sinister um, I'm inside the store a few minutes ago, browsing for some snacks. The guy has the TV on, and the second plane crashes into the World Trade Center. And it's like, oh no, this is really, really bad. Um, yeah, you knew. At, at that point, hit. this is no accident. Yeah, yeah. Uh, th- this is a plot of some kind. I don't know off the top of my head who's behind it, but this is really bad, and we could see something more. Yeah, yeah. For, for me, Doug, it was uh, started off like any other day. So at the White House, I was on the communications team, and I did two things. One, I was the uh, spokesman to the digital media at the time. For President Bush the Younger. Yeah, yep. So I was in the White House. I was in the uh, old executive office building, which is the big gray battleship of a building right next to the White House. On the White House, uh, the 18 acres, they call it. And um, we uh, and there were what, what I did was I was a spokesman to the digital media, so the CNN.coms and the you know the Washington Post.coms. They had their own reporters at that time. There was a difference between broadcast and print and digital. Not so much today, but in those right. days, yeah. And then the other thing, uh, I ran the digital strategy for the White House, which at the time there was no social media. It was all about what you could create on the website right so it was, a, it was just a fantastic job it was uh i was just so happy to to work there i'd worked on the campaign and um and so every morning doug at eight o'clock there was a communications meeting and with with uh probably 30 35 people people uh involved in other white house spokesmen there were regional spokesmen. There were national spokesmen. Ari Fleischer was a press secretary at the time. I recall him, yes. 
and uh, uh, speech writers were invited. It was just the the whole communications group were there, and we would have a meeting at eight o'clock. Now, this meeting on September 11 was short because Ari was traveling with the president. Karen Hughes was traveling with the president. I think Dan Bartlett was. And so a number of people were gone. And so it was a shorter meeting, but we would go over what the message of the day was. So that got done about uh, maybe 8.30 or so. And then there were two people. We had a routine every morning, go back to our office. And then we would go over to Starbucks on 17th Street and grab a coffee and then come back. And so my two colleagues... Uh, Mercy and Wendy and I went over to get some coffee. We came back to our office, and I noticed at that time Mercy and I shared an office together, and the TV was on, and uh, we walked in, and we saw the the flames coming out of the the First World Trade Center tower, and it was on the Today Show, and I remember clearly Matt Lauer saying there are reports that it's a Cessna. Right. And, Which is a small airplane. Right. Turned out to be incorrect, but that happens. Right. And so that was the that was at least what he said. Mercy was the spokesperson for the president for uh the for the Hispanic audience. She was a, a Spanish speaker and um so she picked up the phone, she was talking to someone and I was right next to the T V watching uh the today show coverage and i saw i saw that second plane bear in and hit it i saw that live right and of course when you see that you're not believing what you see it looks like a movie i mean it's like this can't be happening right and i saw it i saw that explosion and i was in complete disbelief i went across the hallway to my boss it was tucker eskew the director of the white house office of media affairs he was on the phone and i interrupted him and i said tucker a second plane hit the world trade center and he he blew me off and uh he was a gruff guy good guy kind of gruff and and he you know he, he motioned me off and he kept the phone and he said you saw a replay and i said uh tucker i saw a second plane and I, you know, I'm thinking at the time, this is impossible. Yeah, right. And uh, Tucker again, again brushed me off. He's from South Carolina, had a southern drawl, and he said, you saw a replay, and brushed me off. And so, you know, I walked back to my office, and I'm thinking to myself, did I see a replay? Now I'm questioning me. Is right? this a dream or what? Yeah, and, and so I, I walked back, and, uh, and Tucker is in our office you know, a minute later, and he apologized, and he said, uh, "You were right." He said, "Let's let's get the team and have an emergency communications meeting." Office of Media Affairs had about ten people in it, so we round, rounded up the group, and we were in Tucker's office, and I had forgotten my pager, and at that time, I mean, Blackberries were brand new, but. Uh, the only people that had the Blackberries, which are, you know, where, where you could email um, and use it as a phone, were the senior staff. And so we all just had pagers and our Motorola flip phones. And I, I used to carry a pager as well. It was kind right. of practice in those days. Yeah, yeah. And so I excused myself, went back to my office, 
and a, a Cheyenne guy who um, who I knew since the uh, the eighties who lived out there. He was a fundraiser, um, and he lived out in Arlington. And he he called me as I was picking up the pager. He called my desk phone, recognized his number, Rob Jennings, and Rob starts off every sentence with "dude." It just that's who he is. Who he he ta- just, how he talks? Yeah, dude. And he goes, "Dude, uh, uh, airplane just hit the Pentagon." And I and I said, "Are are you sure?" And he said, "Dude, I saw it." So I hang up the phone with him. I go to back to our where we're having this communications meeting, and I said to Tucker, uh, "I said, plane just hit the Pentagon." You know, and he used an expletive, and he said, "You're just full of good news today." And um, uh, and a few seconds later, we heard a commotion out in the hallway, and it was the Secret Service bashing on every door and telling us to evacuate the building. A plane was headed for the White House. And so we opened the door and saw this. The old executive office building is gigantic and saw, you know, our colleagues running down the hallway and so you know we got out we started we ran for the door and and really there are there are photos out there where you can see all these white house staffers running out of the old executive office building out of the white house out onto the the north lawn and i can remember i can remember running and i was with my colleague jane cook who's a lot shorter than than i was and i and i just told her jane you gotta run and uh, and because we had heard plane, that's what they told us. Plane was headed for the White House, and so everything is just chaos. We run out. We're outside of the the White House now. It's like, well, what do we do now? Right. And um, so we were told. Did, did you have any kind of plans in place for something like this? Was there any working no thing you could fall back on? Any drills? Anything? Well, it, it, perhaps for the senior staff. Yes, but I was definitely not senior staff, you know. <laughs> okay. And uh, so so we were told we're, we're all going to congregate in, in Lafayette Park, which is right north of the White House. And we, and we just stood there. I had left my pager in my office. Oh, no. Yeah, or I had left my cell phone. Mm-hmm. I had left my cell phone, right? I had my pager, but I couldn't make a call. Not that you could make a call anyway because all the lines were clogged. But we had heard at that time that a bomb went off at the State Department. And so we're just thinking. Which turned out to be inaccurate, I believe. Correct. But so we know that two planes hit the World Trade Center. A plane hit the Pentagon. We had just heard that a bomb blew up in the State Department. And so it is really surreal. You know, are we – what kind of an attack is this, Doug? None of us knew. So there was a – person uh who worked for the first lady and her husband had an office in the chrysler building which was on i'm thinking 12th 12th and h 13th and i can't remember but we were all to go down there to the top floor of the chrysler building and we would that's where we would hang out and so there were um you know 100 plus people I, i don't know how many people you know we were all chaos i'm sure yeah, and we were on the top floor and just waiting to, um, to to know what to do. And I can remember Barry Jackson, who worked for Carl Rove. He t- he told a group of us go on the internet, do some research about nine eleven, see if there is a significance with that date. You know, um, 
And so that's what we did. We just got on the Internet and just started researching. So far as I know, there isn't prior to this. Correct. Correct. Um, and and uh, so we were doing that. We were in this big conference room, and I can remember Secret Service showed up, and they were pulling out the most senior of the senior staffers there. And I can remember telling my friend Ken Lasias, who was a spokesman for the uh, western part of the U.S., White House spokesman, I can remember telling Ken, they're not looking for us. And they and they weren't right, and uh, and so that's what we did in the afternoon. And I can remember going downstairs with him and another colleague, and they were uh, to take a smoke break. I wasn't smoking, but they were. No judgment, Doug. <laughs> um, but I can remember Ken saying something that was uh, was pretty spooky. He said what worried him was. The president was not in Washington. The president has not returned to Washington. You know, he was in Nebraska at the time. And Had Louisiana. been in Florida previously. Yeah. But he did not return immediately to uh, D.C., which was spooky. None of us knew anything um, except for if he's not here, you know, we're in trouble. You know, my job at the time was updating the White House website, talking to the uh, digital press, and I couldn't. We couldn't update the site, which was just critical. We had to have a response, um, you know, for the nation's sake. Right. So there was this programmer. His name was George Lewis, who was brilliant. He was able to tunnel into the White House website somehow, get the president's statement up there, which was so important for the optics of the whole thing. It can't look like we're shut down. Right. So anyway. Um, I just remember um, probably about seven. We were we were let go. Um, we were told we could go for the day, and um, uh, driving home. And I lived, you know, third third of quarter mile, third mile from the Pentagon, and driving uh, on um, three ninety five to get to my apartment. And I lived on the seventeenth floor in Pentagon City. To I, I can remember seeing the 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 pentagon burning and the the smell of the smoke when i got into the um elevator and then up to the 17th floor opened my uh opened my door and the apartment was full of smoke and no windows were open patio door wasn't open i mean it was because i was so close to the pentagon wow and um not being able to sleep that night of course and uh just that feeling of you and I were talking earlier. It's a one that feeling of anger, absolute anger. I, I was I was angry. I wanted blood. Yeah. But who do you strike back at? This is not an organized nation. That's the thing. It was so. Um, it's not like yeah. When Japan bombs Pearl Harbor, okay, we strike back at Japan. There's no nation here. Right. Right. Which made it so different. And uh, so the absolute anger followed by shock. You know, just complete shock. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I, I wrote a column, and we referenced it before. It was in the paper on, uh, I think, on Thursday. But, you know, the thing that I remember, Doug, that really stood out, too, was um, friends of mine and I went down to Charlottesville for the weekend to get away from everything because it was – As I can well understand. Sure, yeah. yeah. It was – I mean, the hours were so long at the White House, and 
We just wanted to get away, and so the was, NFL didn't even play that weekend, which is the only right. time, except for the Kennedy assassination, when that's happened. That's right. So my friend Rob, Sil- Rob and Celia Wallace, and they had their three-year-old daughter Morgan. We were at their their condo in Charlottesville, and um, I remember so well. Morgan, this little girl, three, was playing with her blocks on Saturday morning, I think, and uh, she had set two towers up with her blocks and um, was knocking them down as if with another block that was a plane. Wow. And that was haunting. It was was. just haunting. So when – but I'll tell you, when when I went from shock and anger to feeling confident that everything was going to be okay, and this is a a vivid memory as well, is when – Dick Cheney was on Tim Ressert's show, Meet the Press. Right. And to hear his st- just steely resolve. And I love President Bush, absolutely. You know, huge supporter, great leader. But I got my confidence. I did. And it's just my opinion. I had my confidence because Dick Cheney was in the room. Right. And um, former Secretary of State, I believe, very uh, well versed in foreign affairs. Uh, Secretary of Defense. Secretary of Defense. And just. Um, uh, uh, you know, I I remember thinking I will follow, I will follow Dick Cheney everywhere. I always thought smartest man in the room, always, and uh, and I can remember my whole attitude just changed when um, when when watching him. The other thing that I mentioned in in that column that I wrote, Doug, which was uh, very humbling, was when the family members of Flight ninety three came to the White House. Uh, a couple weeks after, right. and so uh, the White House staffers could pay their respects because Flight 93, um, they say, was either headed for the White House or the Capitol. And um, so they came so uh, the president could honor them, and then we could all thank them. So we're lined up in the uh, in the space between um, – well, right outside, it's a hallway right outside the Rose Garden, and they walked down, and this little boy uh, was, you know, five. He lost his father on the plane, and oh, he man. stopped and gave me a hug. And I and I can just remember thinking how unworthy I was at the time, you know, just feeling so much guilt. Um, when, when you see these, you know, the grieving families that came in, it was it – was, I was glad. I was so glad that we could do that. Right. But just feeling guilty was, you know, the feeling that I had. And uh, you know, and, and in that column, Doug, I, I said that those memories are painful, but really vivid. And, and thank God they are. Right. You know, we always want to feel this way. We we want to treat the day with reverence. And one last thing, and I know I'm filibustering, but one last thing, you know, I watched this morning. You know, Saturday morning in the fall, that's college game day. Right. That is just, it's my favorite thing on TV. And this morning, uh, I had no interest in it. I felt an obligation, and this is just me, uh, I felt an obligation to watch the names of the, those killed in the, in 9-11 to be read out loud. Just felt an obligation to watch it. And, um, and Doug, it was, it was tremendously sad but so powerful especially when the family members who were reading off the names there were some chosen to also say a a memory about their departed 
you know, their their father, their son, their daughter, whoever it was, wife, husband, and to and to listen to that. I, God, it was I, to me. It was just so important to listen to that. You know, I'm so glad I watched that. It was, like I said, tremendously sad, but important. Jimmy, I was on the road on vacation. I couldn't fly back, so I'm driving around, driving out of Arkansas and back home through Kansas and so forth. And this is my perception. I can't prove it. I can't sit down and give you a graph. I didn't do recordings. But my perception was that people were different and that we all had this feeling that we're in this together. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, Total strangers, people in stores, people in hotels. It's like we're under attack and we're in this together. Now... Can I prove that? No, but that was my perception at the time. Yeah. Do you remember anything like that? I do. I absolutely do. I can remember uh, going up the elevator to my apartment, and uh, and there was this woman was going up there as well. Say it was right. You know, it was on September 11. And we just held hands. Had no idea who she was, dude. None. And we just held hands, and that was it. Never saw her again. But it was. Uh, and and that feeling at the time of unity and and i was hoping that it would last it didn't it didn't last but it it you know it it lasted and it couldn't you know our memories are so short but man it was a good feeling at the time i you know somebody said this morning that uh that she missed that feeling of unity on september 12th and i remember it I remember it clearly. Uh, yeah. I'm not old enough to have lived through Pearl Harbor, but I would assume it was the same sort of thing. Right. Um, th- this feeling that we've been attacked, and maybe I don't know you, but we're all Americans, and, and we're facing this danger together, and we're all on the same side. Yeah, and, and Doug, I'll tell you, when there was that vote in Congress, whether to give the president the war powers authority or whatever it was, wrong terminology, I understand that, but to give him the power to to – to, to start a war, take military action against right. whomever. There was one woman who voted against it. Her name was Barbara Lee from California. Right, and um, and that and she immediately got thousands of death threats. And and uh, instead of us thinking as a nation, well, you know, she gets a vote, and that's her vote. Jeanette Rankin of Montana voted against World War One, the only one in the House of Representatives. Similar yeah. situation. Yeah, they get a vote. And inst- they're voting their conscience, right? And so instead of condemning them, let's just you know that's that's your opinion. If we don't like it, we're going to vote you out. But that does not mean we resort to death threats. You're, and not, I can, you're not the enemy. Yeah, I was just thinking that was unfortunate at the time. Although I emotions were so high, though that right. sort of thing was common. sure, sure. And I disagreed with her as well. But um, you know, just kind of thinking. Uh, it's okay to have a different opinion. It's all right to have a different opinion on things, you know? So Things were pretty nervous for a while after that. I was living in Rock Springs, Wyoming. This is maybe six months later. There was a, a guy from Egypt who was an engineer in the oil fields. Um, he's a foreigner living in Sweetwater County, Wyoming. They found a white powder in his hotel room, and, oh, my Lord, this stuff hit the fan. Turned out it was a vitamin powder, but you know about the anthrax and all sure, that. Yep. Uh, and and there was also where I'm going with this. There was also a paranoia, particularly against perceived outsiders. Right. This poor guy had to be scared to death. You bet. Um, I mean, he's living in the United States. He kind of, in some people's mind, maybe looks sort of like these terrorists, and we don't know who this guy is. Um, so there was good and bad. I remember going to my apartment that week. I don't think it was the 11th, but I can remember seeing. There were three uh, women who looked of Middle Eastern descent, and as I walked by, 
you know, they look they looked down. They looked like, uh, you know, like they didn't want to be seen. And what a horrible feeling that that had to. Oh yeah. What a horrible feeling that had to be. But ironically, Arab Americans volunteered in huge numbers to give blood. They volunteered to be interpreters. A lot of those folks went out of their way. Probably much like the Japanese after Pearl Harbor who lived in this country to yeah. prove their loyalty. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough situation. And and if you didn't live through it and you weren't an adult at the time, it, it's it's difficult to understand the paranoia. Right. But but there was a lot of fear. Sure. There was a lot of fear and and you know as we spoke there was a a lot of anger uh too, but it was um you know I, I you know the never forget is good. Um you know, we need to keep it in, uh, you know, in our, our minds as fresh as we can. But um, uh, so anyway, it's uh, it's hard to believe that it's been 20 years. But uh, Jimmy, we have about two minutes left in this segment. What can we take away from this experience as a nation, do you think? That we have an incredibly short memory. Um, Look how divided we are now. It's it's unbelievable. And it's sad that we are. Um, but perhaps, you know, perhaps when we have these memorials, um, it is a uh, it's a reminder how, it, how important it is to respect each other. Jimmy, great interview. Thank you for taking your time this morning. I do appreciate it. Yeah, Doug, always good to see you. Good to see you. I think, uh, I think Matt Stafford's going to play well for you this well, year. Well, we'll find out tomorrow night. Yeah. Thanks, Jimmy. Appreciate right. it. Good to see you, Doug. Kia of Cheyenne is your local service center for your make and model of car or truck. Our certified technicians. AM650, KGAB, and online at KGAB.com. This weather update is brought to you by Four Quarter Siding. No matter the weather, Four Quarter Siding can help protect your home. Plentiful sunshine once again this Saturday in southeastern Wyoming. Mild temps, upper 80s and low 90s. We'll have a slight chance for late afternoon and evening showers and thunderstorms. Some breezy winds otherwise. Partly cloudy late. Lows mid 50s. Upper 70s and low 80s Sunday and Monday. Sunshine, slight chance for thunder on Sunday. Little better chance for rain and thunder late Monday into Tuesday. I'm day weather meteorologist on Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo GOAT G-O-A-T Acronym Stands for Greatest of All Time As in Spaghetti Sandwiches for Dinner They're my fave Dad You're the GOAT You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same Visit AdoptUSKids.org Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Adopt U.S. Kids and the Ad Council We're all part of your community. We all play a role in keeping our community safe. So protect your everyday. If you see something suspicious, say something to local authorities. AM 650 KGAB, Cheyenne's number one news talk radio station. Again, you're in tune with the Weekend in Wyoming program. We just concluded a very moving segment with uh, Jimmy Orr, a Wyoming person who was in the Bush White House the day of the 9-11 attacks. And uh, we recorded this. We'll probably play it back at some point 
again in the future. In the meantime, you're in tune with the Weekend in Wyoming program. Wonderful to have you along with us on this uh, very somber occasion. We're going to switch gears a little bit here now. And I have Dr. Chef, uh, Jeffrey Chapman, who's Chief Medical Officer at Cheyenne Regional Medical Center. And we're talking about the COVID vaccinations. Good morning, Dr. Chapman. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Okay, we want to talk about the COVID vaccinations. One reason that I asked I uh, asked for this interview is I think there's a tremendous amount of uh, of misinformation out there. Um, somehow this whole thing got politicized. So we're we're going to cut right to the chase. Are the COVID vaccinations safe? Yes, I I think without question they are, um, and I think you know one of the biggest testimonials I can give to that is is that. I have my family members all vaccinated. I've had discussions with a number of uh, friends who've had family members with concerns, and and I, I recommend it. I, you know, in in the world, unfortunately, nothing is absolutely perfect, um, in the sense of that that uh, there's always going to be, you know, some one-offs or rare things that that uh, can happen, and there are some rare things that happen with the vaccine. But I think when you compare it. To the the issues that people have when they actually get COVID, I think they are just minuscule. Um, you know, if you look at the the efficacy of the vaccine, um, uh, CDC uh, report just came out um, that basically says that you're um, over ten times more likely to be hospitalized if you haven't had the vaccine, ten times more likely to die if you haven't had the vaccine and five times more likely to get infected. Um, and, and again, it, it is not perfect. Um, I think that one of the things that, that, you know, I hear and I understand from people is, gee, there's this rare chance I may have an issue if I get the vaccine. Um, but a lot of people who have COVID, it's just like a cold. And, and there's some truth to that. But we're seeing more and more data that even people who have mild infections have what we call post-COVID or long-haul syndrome. Mm-hmm. And it's a significant percent. Um, if you look at people that actually hospitalized, and again, there are so many numbers about all this, I don't, I don't wanna you know, state this just as straight fact, but, but it's probably 60 to 70% of people have long-term symptoms in the sharm, uh, or excuse me, form of shortness of breath, fatigue, they talk about foggy heads, uh, mental, uh, lack of mental clarity. Um, and uh, the people who get mild infections, it's probably in the 30%. And I, I always talk to people about, you know, do you know anybody personally that's had anything like this? And I, I have a number of friends and coworkers who've had family members or they themselves um, have had COVID, not had to be in the hospital, and they just talk about the shortness of breath, the rapid heart rate, that sort of thing. So, so there, there's a lot that goes with it. Um, I think the other thing that, that certainly... I hear from people is concerns with the vaccine about fertility and what what happens if I want to get pregnant. Is there any chance this is going to alter my DNA? Um, And if you look at how the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine work, they have mRNA, which is is half of DNA, for lack of a better term, that never enters the the nucleus where we have DNA in our cells. And basically, it just creates a a recipe for the cells to create... uh, proteins uh, like are on the the COVID vaccine and then our bodies build an immune response to them and they are gone very quickly Um, and so I I know that you know until it's been 10 years no one can say oh 
you, you don't know about the long term, but if you just look at the science behind how they work, there is zero chance that they can alter your DNA um, for a number of reasons. Doctor, so, sorry, that was a mouthful. No, go uh, ahead. Feel free. Tell me what else I can answer. Well, I have a. You're talking about after effects. I wanted to toss this out there. I have a a friend of mine who had COVID in um, in November of last year, around Thanksgiving. He got pretty sick, and he says, "Yeah, it was it was real bad, and I got sick." But the thing is, here we are, almost a year later. He still doesn't have his sense of taste and smell back. Is that unusual? That that is unusual, but not unheard of. Um, And and. Uh, you know, unfortunately, I read a story that was interesting. A gentleman who actually made his living tasting food and wine, and the same thing happened to him, and it made it so he couldn't work. And so it, it's not rare, certainly not common, but uh, it, it happened. Will he ever get it back? I, no one knows for sure. Um, they, there's actually some people working on retraining, um, and uh, there, there's some work on, on how we retrained by stimulating the, the taste uh, um, taste buds and, and part of taste is smell um, and so but no one knows most people do but uh, I've heard some reports of rare cases where people do not get it back now this friend told me that uh, when he's around something that's extremely odiferous like say garlic or gasoline he can kind of faintly detect something and he took that as a hopeful sign yeah yeah no, and it's good. You know, um, uh, taste and uh, sense of smell are related to nerves, and nerves are very slow to regrow. So we talk about a year before you can say, boy, this isn't going to happen. Dr. Chapman, I'm going to toss out a few things I've seen on social media just to get your response. Um, sure. And I know some of this is, is, is wrong, frankly, but you're the expert here, so I'll ask you about it. Um, one concern is, well, people are dying from the COVID shots. How valid is that concern? So it's extremely, extremely rare. Um, we have, uh, you know, in the world, I believe, and again, I'm, I'm sorry, there are so many numbers out there that, that I hate to even even try and quote things, but I believe we're at over 400 million doses in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and uh, you know, there are people that are going to die after getting the vaccine, and people say, well, it must be the vaccine. But there are people that die every day, and and just because they had the vaccine, that that's where I think sometimes uh, things get a little mixed around. Um, to my knowledge, um, there are single digits of people that have died related to the vaccine, and it's related to allergic reactions. Which you know, unfortunately, people die from allergic reactions from antibiotics and other drugs we give on a rare occasion. Um, uh, there have been some very rare reports of, of blood clots, and I know there were one or two deaths that, that were probably related to the Janssen vaccine in, in uh, women. I believe they, they use 20 to 50, so that's why they're not uh, recommending the uh, uh, Janssen vaccine for, for uh, females in that age. But, but is it, it is so small, and then when you talk about the number of people who've died um, in the United States alone, um, you know, 650,000 people have died. I, I guess, again, nothing is perfect. And, and I, I guess part of the discussion I have with people is every day we ingest things, chemicals in our food, um, you know, medications. Um, there, are, there are just a lot of things that we ingest. Um, and I'm not trying to pick on drink alcohol, but smoking and alcohol have a direct link to cancer. 
Right. And uh, um, so, uh, again, you know, and, and um, I don't choose to smoke, but uh, I choose to have a glass of wine. I just, I know that it's very rare, and I'm, I'm willing to take that risk, but uh, um, I, it's just, I, I wish I could help people put things in perspective, that, that the, the things we see in the hospital and, and the people right before they're about to be put on a ventilator, almost 100% of the time you hear, I wish I would have gotten the vaccine. And uh, our nurses and our intensive care unit doctors tell this story again and again. Okay, I'm speaking with News Talk Radio, AM 650, KGAB, and online at kgab.com. Hi, uh, I found a toy dinosaur over on the playground by Smith Street. Uh, it had this phone number on it, and, well, uh, I just wanted to make sure the dinosaur made it back to its little owner. Yeah, hi. I think I found your kid's stuffed animal near the swing set. Um, just want to call. I'm sure she misses it. I know my son gets super attached to the smallest things, even a fire truck, uh, and I'd be happy to drop it off. The toy was a little muddy, so I cleaned it up, and um, it's good to go whenever you're around. When I found the little sippy cup, I just had to give you a call. It's for a kid, you know? We'd do anything for kids. Yet one in six children in the U.S. struggle with hunger. Help end childhood hunger and give all of our kids the meals they need to grow. Learn how at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. If baby could talk, she'd say a lot. You'd know what she's thinking and what makes her happy. But unfortunately, baby can't talk or remind you. You're the one taking her to daycare today. And she won't speak up if you drive straight to work like any other day and never think to look in the backseat. Every year, dozens of kids die from heat stroke in cars. No one is perfect. So set a reminder and always look before you lock. Where's baby? Paid for by NHTSA. AM 650 KGAB, Cheyenne's number one news talk radio station. You're in tune with the Weekend in Wyoming program. On the phone, I have Dr. Jeff, uh, Jeffrey Chapman. Dr. Chapman is the chief medical officer at Cheyenne Regional Medical Center. We're talking about the COVID vaccine. I'm uh, asking him about some things I've seen on social media. Dr. Uh, Chapman, something else I've seen recently, uh, and I don't know if this number is correct or not, or if it's, there's any basis in fact, but people are claiming uh, that roughly 65% of the people infected with uh, COVID in Israel have been vaccinated. Is that true? So there, there was a study that suggested that uh, there was a high rate of people infected with the Delta variant in Israel that were vaccinated. Um, I think the important thing to look at is how severe their their infection was. And that number is certainly not the experience we're having in the United States. And I, there are a number of studies and people have published uh, news articles about it that, that you know, dance around that. And, and uh, so I, I wish I could tell you the absolute exact numbers. But, but I think, again, I, I, if COVID-19 turned into a cult for everyone, this, this whole issue would be done. The, the real question is how effective is the vaccine at preventing hospitalization and death? And I, I believe there's a, a follow-up study to that that talked about how many people were actually hospitalized and died in Israel who were vaccinated, and it was a much lower number. Um, but yes, I, I'm aware of that data. And, and again, the vaccine is not perfect, um, but we just we have to look and say, what, what are the chances that you're gonna end up hospitalized or die 
at least in the United States, um, the numbers are, are very, very uh, hard to argue with that it is worthwhile uh, taking the tiny, tiny risk of getting a vaccine to avoid that. Dr. Chapman, another common argument I see on Facebook in particular is, well, you know, this was rushed through. Uh, They got this through in a hurry. They didn't look at it closely. Who knows what the effects will be? How would you respond to that? Yeah, and it's understandable. And I I think, too, if we go back, part of the the reason people are, are having trouble trusting the vaccine is if we go back to the start of this, when you looked at what the CDC was saying and the World Health Organization, we got so many mixed messages. You know, people were trying to make statements, you know, using the best of, of the, the data and the information they had. At first it was, oh, don't mask. You know, save the mask for the healthcare workers. Um, you know, be careful because um, yeah, the, the most common way the COVID vaccine is spread is, is through contamination on surfaces and question of whether it was aerosol or droplet spread. So there was just a lot of conflicting data and, and a lot of anxiety around it. And uh, um, so the uh, and I went off, remind me of the question. I apologize. I started going off on that and repeat the question for me. Well, I was just talking about how I've and I see this all the time, the comment along the general lines of they rushed this stuff through. It's, it's a rush job. We don't know what's going to happen. Uh, you may yep. all drop dead in five years. Who knows? Uh, yeah. In other words, they yeah, don't. They no, don't... And I, I'm, I'm sorry. I got off on that tangent. So, so it's a great question. So, so. What I think people have to look at is how much time, how many hours were spent developing the vaccine. And so for a vaccine, for something that's not a pandemic, um, uh, for example, I believe it's the uh, HPV vaccine, they tested it on about 2,500 people. And this was over months because they had trouble finding volunteers and a very small number of people were working on developing the vaccine. If you actually look at the number of hours people who, who were, were dedicating all their research um, in the, the academic centers and at the CDC and that sort of thing, it was huge. And it was probably more hours and more data uh, than we had for other vaccines, uh, even the trials. And it's been long enough that I, I can't remember the exact numbers again, but I believe for Johnson & Johnson and Moderna, it was forty to 50,000 people each so they tested the, the phase three trials on 100,000 people as opposed to an average of about 2,500 people for vaccines developed in the last 10 years. So, so it was, I don't, I think the, the best way to, to look at it is it isn't that, that there was, it was rushed through, it was that a lot of people were spending a lot of time, but the timeline was condensed as opposed to you know, uh, something like the HPV vaccine where, yeah, maybe somebody spent a month and then six months later they spent another month, um, you know, they, they enrolled people in the study and, you know, maybe it was two or three a month and so the, the timeline was spread out over years. Um, and so I, I, again, no one can 100% say until we get 10 years out that there's no chance of any long-term effects. but. Again, I think you've got to go back to, to looking at what the efficacy is and, and you know, the amount of, of uh, people who've died, you know, in the, the world. I've got the Johns Hopkins uh, pulled up on my screen right now. 4.6 million deaths in the U.S., or excuse me, in the world. Um, I, I that, That's a lot of people. And uh, um, I guess I just, I, I go back to my litmus test is always, 
do I feel comfortable recommending it to my family and to my friends and that sort of thing. And it's absolutely without hesitation. Doctor, another argument I've heard, and this has been going on for a while as well, is, hey, look, the death rate's 1%. You don't change your life for a thing that may kill 1% of the population. How would you respond to that? Yeah, no, and, and again, I, I understand that. Um, the, the problem is that, that if you are unlucky enough um, to get COVID severely and die, it, it just, it's a horrible Thing for families, um, you know, I have coworkers who've had more than one family member die, um, and it is small. But but when we compare it to, you know, things like you know, uh, motor vehicle accidents and and drug overdoses and you know things that that unfortunately we've kind of just learned to accept in this country, it is so much greater number of people dying and. The other, the other big concern, quite honestly, from my standpoint, is is that currently Cheyenne Regional, we are stressed. We are, are trying to take care of people who have non-COVID-related illness, um, and we are so overrun with patients, it's stressing our ability to take care of people with other other uh, health problems, and that's something across the country. It is it is also um, affecting healthcare workers across the country, and Cheyenne is no different. Um, we're seeing an exodus of people uh, from all kinds of, of healthcare positions because they are just stressed and tired and they also feel like, gee, I'm, I'm putting my own health at risk and my family's health at risk, um, having to day in and day out uh, take care of people uh, who have COVID-19. Now, we have people in our facility, they are just stepping up day after day, but I also understand where after a while they're saying, you know, I, I just am worried about how long I can do this for. And so so my, my big concern, again, is I don't want to see anybody get sick, have a long haul. I don't want to see uh, people die. But we're also running the risk of stressing our health systems where we can't take care of non-COVID-related things. How close are you? We a moratorium on non-urgent or emergent surgeries. And, and, you know, the term that's thrown around is elective surgeries. Uh, what what really our, our decision point is, and we use a scale called a MENT scale that says what are the chances that, that delaying the surgery will affect the patient, you know, how complicated is the surgery, et cetera, et cetera. But we are putting off some surgeries because uh, not that we think are going to affect people, um, but, for example, people who need their knee replaced or their hip replaced. Um, you know, their long-term health probably won't be affected, but they're in pain. And... Uh, you know, a lot of them have made plans to try and have this done with work and family. So, so, so that's my biggest concern. I, I understand the argument, and it's absolutely right. Most people do not get sick, but when we start stressing our healthcare system, potentially affecting your loved one having a heart attack and coming into a hospital, um, and they just don't have the resources or needing a ventilator for another reason, uh, we have had to expand our ICU normally. We have a 15-bed dedicated unit. Well, we have had to expand out onto one of our normal medical floors with 10 beds, um, which pushes our, our number of total beds in the hospital down. And for weeks, we have been absolutely full, and we are having to keep people down in the emergency department until we can find a bed on the floor for them. And, uh, you know, they're certainly well taken care of down there, but it decreases the number of beds we have to see uh, patients in in the emergency department so um, it takes longer you know I feel horrible people are having to wait in our emergency department 
sometimes for two or three hours before they can be seen. And so it, it's the, the downstream second and third level effects, not just the, the death and, and morbidity that we're seeing, but also the effects on the other parts of our healthcare system. But I, I say that argument that well, only 1% of people get sick. I, I just don't think that that holds water. This is, this is affecting a lot of things. And also the economy. Um, you know, I, I think we're doing a better job of, of saying, gee, we don't have to shut everything down. But, uh, you know, I'm worried. There, there are reports across the country of schools having to shut down because they're just having so many COVID cases. And uh, if you look the this current round of uh, the Delta variant, uh, the number of, of kids hospitalized is, and I again, I don't have the study in front of me, but I believe it's, it's five times the number of kids hospitalized and 10 times the number of children requiring uh, ICU beds. And again, small number of children, but, but that's, a, that's a big thing. It's starting to stress our pediatric hospitals. And I, I think people are misled about that because initially, with the initial strain, the thinking was, well, it doesn't really attack children. That's correct. And, and again, people are absolutely right. The number of kids that get really sick is small, but you also have to remember that the kids that, that get uh, the, the, the virus um, are also the kids that are going to not intentionally um, infect their family members who are going to go out in the community and infect other people. Um, and so uh, it just it's, it's multiple, multiple pieces, and we can't just uh, avoid uh, talking about the kids here because it's a tiny percentage that get real sick. Doctor, we're down to less than a minute left. Any last thoughts on this subject for our listeners this morning? Well, I just real quickly, I, I think one of the biggest things we're seeing is people are starting to lose hope, and I just want to convey the message we will get through this, and uh, I think we can go about our activities safely, and I just want to encourage people to get the vaccine. If anyone wants to talk to me about the vaccine, they're more than, more than willing to call the hospital, and someone will get them to me. I can't promise it'll be immediately, um, and I, I will have a, a very reasonable conversation with people and i appreciate you giving me the time to to give my opinion and and, uh i wish the best for everyone dr chapman we appreciate your time this morning my pleasure have a good weekend you too AM 650 KGAB, Dr. Jeffrey Chapman, Chief Medical Officer at Cheyenne Regional Medical Center. Uh, the other side of the top in the hour, uh, top of the hour break, I'm going to replay an interview we did last week because a lot of people may not have heard it because of the long weekend with Sue Castaneda from the Cheyenne Animal Shelter. That's coming up the other side of the top of the hour news and information break, which is just ahead right here. KGAB Orchard Valley Cheyenne, K258DN Orchard Valley. Breaking news, weather, sports, and talk. A Town Square media station. We're here early before they wake up. We stay late. We stay informed. We invest in the latest technology. We take the time to train the next generation of doctors and nurses. We work together to make sure we heal their bodies and their minds. We do this not because it's our job, but because this is about our veterans' lives. This is our mission. More than 300,000 of us working as one. 
together with families and loved ones. No matter where they live in this country, we'll be there. We all come together and stand together to serve our veterans. We stand strong, united. Stand with us in caring for our veterans. Hey, this is Reba McIntyre. You know, over the years, I've seen many people fall victim to drugs and alcohol. Sadly, some of them never recovered, and some of them aren't here anymore. Drugs and alcohol not only negatively impact your career, but also your relationships, your finances, your health, and so much more. The good news is that we have choices, and you can choose to say yes to a drug-free lifestyle. And if you're suffering right now from addiction, please reach out for help. This message is brought to you by the U.S. Air Force. One in six seniors faces the threat of hunger, and millions more live in isolation. Drop off a hot meal and say a quick hello. Volunteer for Meals on Wheels by donating your lunch break at americaletsdolunch.org. This message brought to you by Meals on Wheels America and the Ad Council. Like yesterday, I'm Joe Chiro, Fox News. The events of 9-11 fresh in many people's minds as the nation remembers what happened 20 years ago today. President Biden and the First Lady a short time ago attending a wreath-laying ceremony at the Flight 93 Memorial near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. He is someone who often talks uh, at solemn events about his own personal loss as a way to try to connect with people who are hurting who are feeling grief but today we are not going to hear that he did put out that six plus minute video last night where he spoke about september 11th and he called for national unity but the white house wants to leave it at that fox's peter Ducey, former president george w bush and vice president harris spoke earlier at the flight 93 memorial presidents biden obama and clinton all gathered earlier today at the national september 11 memorial in new york city where the names of the nearly 3,000 people killed were read michael j simon paul joseph simon President Biden will make his final stop today at the Pentagon for a wreath-laying ceremony. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley. Never forget those who were murdered by terrorists. Never forget those who rushed to save their lives and gave theirs in exchange. Never forget the sons and the daughters, the brothers and sisters and the mothers and fathers who gave their tomorrows for our todays. Honor them. Before Millie spoke, the names of the Pentagon victims were read aloud. America is listening to Fox News. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. What are the most important issues facing Americans today? Every Monday, join me, Brett Baer, Chief Political Anchor and Anchor and Executive Editor of Special Report, and my rotating all-star panel of experts as we discuss the policies, practices and solutions to the biggest and most important issues of the day. You can hear new episodes every Monday. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. 
The Fox News Rundown is a weekday morning podcast that dives deep into the major and controversial stories of the day. Hosted by the anchors of Fox News Radio. Subscribe now to hear a perspective of news you won't find anywhere else. Listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Questions raised in a report by the New York Times. It says a drone strike in Afghanistan killed some innocent victims, including children. Fox's Matt Finn has details on the August missile strike that killed Zamari Ahmadi, while he, according to the report, was loading water into his car. A U.S. drone strike. The military claims took out an imminent threat in Kabul, reportedly killed an Afghan man who had long worked for a U.S. aid group and 10 innocent civilians. That's according to a New York Times report, but two U.S. military sources telling Fox News that the U.S. Central Command remains confident about the intelligence that led to that drone strike. An investigation is underway. The U.S. military claims a man was loading explosives into the car. New studies from the Centers for Disease Control show the COVID-19 vaccines remain highly effective against hospitalizations and death. They show unvaccinated people are 10 times more likely to be hospitalized and 11 times more likely to die. Colorado health officials are recommending schools enforce mask mandates. Fox 31 Denver's Courtney Fromm. Health officials want school districts across the state to require masks at school. That means students, teachers, staff, and visitors should all wear masks even if they are vaccinated. Now the state also says that if you're vaccinated and you don't have to quarantine if you're exposed to someone with COVID at school. Students who are not vaccinated don't have to quarantine either if they were wearing a mask when they were exposed or if they're getting tested every week. But Governor Polis stating he's not issuing a statewide mask mandate. Now CDPHE wants uh, schools to update their HVAC systems or add HIPAA filters. Schools without HVAC systems, they're asking them to open their windows and allow a little more airflow in and of course try and get students outside as much as possible. Johns Hopkins University reports that the U.S. is docking right at your door by local Wyoming Roasted Coffee at SnowyElk.com. This weather update is brought to you by Four Quarter Siding. No matter the weather, Four Quarter Siding can help protect your home. Plentiful sunshine once again this Saturday in southeastern Wyoming. Mild temps, upper 80s and low 90s. We'll have a slight chance for late afternoon and evening showers and thunderstorms. Some breezy winds otherwise. Partly cloudy late. Lows mid 50s. Upper 70s and low 80s Sunday and Monday. Sunshine, slight chance for thunder on Sunday. Little better chance for rain and thunder late Monday into Tuesday. I'm day weather meteorologist Don Watzel. today for an autism screening. The sooner it's diagnosed, the better. And it can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. AM 650 KGAB, Cheyenne's number one news talk radio station. On the phone, I have Sue Castaneda, CEO of the Cheyenne Animal Shelter. Thank you for joining us this morning, Sue. We do appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. Now, as, as pretty much everyone knows, uh, there's a bit of a funding issue between uh, the city and county and the Cheyenne Animal Shelter. Uh, for those who are not familiar with that, kind of kind of spell that out for us. Well, so the shelter has always cared for animals, uh, you know, strays, homeless animals and such for the last 51 years. About 35, 40 years ago, when Marination was um, in office, he's signed a contract between the city and county and the shelter to handle animal control. Um, and in the last 10 years, our expenses, of course, have gone up every, you know, exponentially every year. But the funding amount from the city and county has basically stayed flatlined. Um, and so 
We just we've been telling them for the last three years that it's going to have to go up. Hello. Yeah, I'm I'm here. I'm listening. Go ahead. Okay, sorry. That it's going to have to go up, and um, they we're just going to come to a a term, I guess, that we could both agree on. Now I uh, go ahead. Go ahead. So now they have animal control under their purview. And I believe that takes effect tomorrow. Am I right? No, it took effect on the first. Oh, it did. Okay, I thought it was the fifth for some odd reason. Now, I saw some comments from Mayor Collins where he said it would cost an additional million dollars and this, the city just doesn't have it. Um, how would you respond to that? Well, that's it's a misnomer. What we asked for was 850 this year. Then we wanted to, you know, it, need, it needs to go up every year because gas goes up, insurance costs goes up, everything goes up every year. We wanted to get to a million in the next year and then a million five in the next two or three years. Casper... Uh, Metro Animal Control. They handle three thousand animals a year, and they have a budget of one point five million. Mm-hmm. We do nearly six thousand, and we've been doing it on, for far less money than than that. So, we just feel that it's a service worth paying for, and I think that my officers were really good. Are there any ongoing negotiations at this point? Are you still talking? Oh yeah. Um, what we're talking about now, since they did take, they did hire um, two animal. Um, the reason I had to we did this so quickly was because of the uncertainty. I lost three officers. One mm-hmm. took another job. One uh, moved on to another position as well, and another one retired. So I had one officer left, and there's just no way to, to do animal control. I'm just go they would go crazy with calls. <laughs> but um, so they're hiring four animal control people as well as a supervisor. The negotiation that we're working out now with the city and county is to shelter the animals. So they will most likely still work out of our building, uh, but they will handle all the animal control calls and they'll have to um, do their own reclaims and such like that. So the negotiation that we're asking for now is 825000 between the city and county to, to shelter the animals. So does it look like the city and county doing animal control then will be a permanent situation or is that temporary or do we know? I don't think we know for sure, but what I can tell you is that they're they're able to pay them more than I can pay or we can pay at the shelter. Um, you know, they're going to be getting a, a salary and benefits, you know, city pension, things that I, I, don't, I can offer. So I don't know why anybody would want to come back, uh, at least the, the employees and <laughs> the control officers. Okay, I'm speaking with uh, Sue Castaneda, CEO of the Cheyenne Animal Shelter. We'll be back with more right after these words. Parents, we know we can't protect our kids from everything, but we can protect them from six types of cancer caused by HPV. The American Cancer Society recommends getting your sons and daughters the HPV vaccine starting at age nine to protect them later in life. Do you know where your coffee comes from? How about right here in Cheyenne? Buy locally roasted organic coffee from Cheyenne's award-winning hometown coffee roaster, Snowy Elk Coffee. Snowy Elk Coffee offers single-serve steamed coffee packets, 12-ounce bags, and 5-pound bags for the office or serious coffee lover. Snowy Elk Coffee makes it easy with online ordering, free local delivery, and monthly subscription service. No minimums and is dropped off right at your door. Buy local Wyoming roasted coffee at snowyelk.com. I'm Tiffany. I have some tips for you on how to quit smoking like I did. First, I did some reading about it. I found a lot of great advice on how to quit smoking and picked out the ways I thought would work best for me. I started by setting a quit date. Then I threw out my ashtrays, lighters, and matches. 
I did other things too, like exercising more, and it worked. But I'd still get cravings, especially on long car rides. To help me with that, I put a picture of my mother in my car. She died of lung cancer from smoking cigarettes when I was only 16. Now I have a 16-year-old daughter. That picture of my mother reminds me that I don't want to miss all the things my daughter is going to do in her life, including turning 17. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and CDC. Sensory sensitivity, repetitious behavior, lack of eye contact. You can see signs of autism in children as young as 18 months. Learn the signs at AutismSpeaks.org slash signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. AM 650 KGAB, Cheyenne's number one news talk radio station. I'm speaking with Sue Castaneda, CEO of the Cheyenne Animal Shelter. We've been talking about uh, the ongoing funding issues between the animal shelter and city and county government. Uh, Sue, you mentioned that uh, the, the local government is taking over animal control as of the first. How big of a job is that? Does that really keep people busy? Is it a big challenge or not that much? <laughs> oh, my goodness, Doug. You should do a ride-along someday. <laughs> um, you know, it could be anything from picking up stray dogs to um, it, at Christmas time, there was a cattle truck that tipped over on the highway, and so animal control officers were out there helping to drag some of the, the, the dead cows off the road. They also chase them through neighborhoods the next day. That the I remember that, away. yeah. Um, it can be anything. Plus hoarding cases. When there's uh, when we have a hoarding case, it's going to houses and, and picking up these animals or investigating animal cruelty cases. Um, it is it is a big deal. Um, you know, people get very emotional about their animals, and so it takes a lot of not just legal knowledge and, and ordinance knowledge, but also how to to deal with people who are upset or angry or want to beat you up <laughs> so it's kind of a dangerous job in some ways anyways you know a vicious dog can do a lot of damage by the way and this might be slightly off topic but what what should we do if we're walking down the street and a vicious dog confronts us what should we do oh boy um well first of all stop just stop stand still try to walk away backward and just try not to look it in the eye. Try to get away slowly. If you run, then he's apt to chase you. <laughs> and then you want to call animal control. If, if it's a vicious dog and needs to be picked up as a stray, please let someone know. Okay, I'm speaking with uh, Sue Castaneda, CEO of the Cheyenne Animal Shelter. By the way, if you have any questions or comments, we do have an open phone line at 632-3323. Again, that's 632-3323. Sue, just so everybody knows this, you guys are still taking care of pet adoptions and housing pets and that sort of thing. It's only the animal control you're not doing, right? Right. So we'll, do, we'll still do sheltering. We're still taking stray animals um, and owner surrenders as well. So... We do, like I said, almost 6,000 animals a year. Um, and we'll work closely with the city and county to make this transition as smooth as possible. I've been working with Eric Fountain, the compliance officer at the city, who, who this has now come under his purview. Um, there is just a lot more to it than, than people might realize. Um, we, have, we have vehicles. We have um, software that goes along with, with this. And last year... In 2020, we also had an ordinance passed where we could start doing pet licensing. Uh-huh. Um, and we, we did get that through, but we didn't do it in that it was COVID. We weren't going to charge people. We were trying to give people back their dogs anyway, just so they wouldn't be in the shelter. So 
we do our own spays and neuters at the shelter and adoptions now are by appointment only i know that's kind of a pain for people but it has really worked well in um the behavior of animals not having people walk through all day long and look at them um make an appointment come see them and then also fewer pets are being returned because people really have to think about is this an animal i really want to bring into my home and and make a life for rather than just hey that's cute let's take it <laughs> you know well, that's a good thing then it is yeah it is i know it's you know it's not easy it, it's a little bit of a process to get through but i think my staff has been really good about counseling people on the right pet for themselves um if you have a pet already a dog they'd like you to bring your dog down to meet the pet so that you know it's it's just a lot more comfortable that way for the, the new pet and you know more about what it's going to be like Sue, how much, and this this may be a tough question, but I'll just toss it out there. How much do you think it's going to ta- cost the city and county to take over animal control? $1.5 million at least. Oh, wow. So it's a pretty good sum. It is. I mean, especially, like I said, they're offering a salary plus pensions. Um, so, like I said, I wasn't able to do that. They, um, in our contract, the city and county had given us money for the vehicles, so we'll probably have to give those back to them, but um, we'll have to charge them for all the cages, all of the, the toppers, the lights, um, this computer software that's in the trucks that's very, very helpful to have. So it's not a simple thing. Plus, they're going to have to have their own certified euthanasia technician. Um, and what we'll do is when a pet that they've picked up becomes their property after the three or four days, then my staff can choose which ones they want to take and think they can work with and it'll be up to the animal control officers to determine the outcome of the other pets looks like we have a caller let me get you on the air good morning caller you're on the air go ahead yes i was wondering um uh why this has to be done by the county or the city why can't it be like a private organization what what are the pros and cons and i'll take my answer off the air sue okay so it used to be done by the city and county it was regularly the old dog pound um they decided it would be better to do it as a public private partnership and there has to be someone who enforces the city and county ordinances that they've created so that's why it has to be somewhat public so you really couldn't have a private company doing that then? Yeah, they could. I do. There just aren't any. I mean, okay. I think um, you know every other shelter in the state is run by the city or county. So we were the only one that was doing it as a five hundred one c three nonprofit contracting with the city and county um, to provide the service. So, like last year, when Mayor Orr wanted everybody, all their city departments, to drop back by twenty percent of their budget we kept saying we're not a department we're a private contractor mm-hmm. don't ask private contractors to cut their budget by 20 percent okay again did you, did you have more to add or was that it no that's no i don't okay i'm speaking with uh, sue castaneda ceo of the cheyenne animal shelter we are taking calls if anyone has any questions or comments 632-3323 again that's 632-3323 Sue, with the city and county taking over enforcement of animal control, are are animal control officers hard to find? Do they need special training? Uh, Can pretty much anybody do it? How does that work? (laughs) 
I think it takes a special person to, to do it. You know, it's, it, you do have to know animal handling. You have to know your code enforcement. Um, so, and you have to be willing to put up with people. I know that sounds bad. I mean, there's lovely, lovely people with their pets, but there are also some people who who will be happy to punch out an animal control officer for stepping on their property and that kind of thing. So it can be very dangerous, and they're not allowed to carry guns. So um, they have to be very careful. We often work with the city and um, the police department and the sheriff in a, in a dangerous case. Animal control officers are often the first responders to to an emergency, um, a rollover on the highway with animals or uh, a person who's passed away in their house and someone lets the authorities know and they go in and get the animals that are there. Um, so I wish that there was a law enforcement track within the um, state police training up there in Douglas, but there's not. So a lot of it is just learning from other people who have done it. There's an organization called the National Animal Control Association. There's lots of training, but um, then it comes down to when there's a citation or a court case. The animal control officers are also the ones who have to go to court and testify um, against animal cruelty cases or cases. So there's a lot to it. Looks like we have a caller. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Uh, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. I appreciate it. Uh, this is just a respectful uh, recommendation to the animal shelter. Uh, sometime back, I had brought my cat in, who we picked up as a stray, um, and uh, they did some wonderful work on her. And they told me that um, uh, she would have a chip implanted in her, which which they did, thankfully. Um, but they also said that they were going to make a small nick in her ear for identification, which I didn't quite understand since she had the chip. When we got her back, half of the ear was gone. She was mutilated. So my recommendation to the shelter would be uh, to be somewhat respectful of the people and, and especially the animal that's being brought in. Um, that was the only comment that I made. Uh, every time we look at her, uh, it, it just brings bad memories of what was done to her. So um, thank you very much for the opportunity to say this. Thank you for the call. Thank Sue, you. any any comment on that? Um, so I'm not sure how if, if the staff thought that the pet was stray at first. So they do, if they think it's a feral cat or a, um, a stray cat, once they alter it, they do do the ear thing. I don't, you know, I can see why it looks bad, but um, it allows the staff to know if the animal ever comes back that it's already been altered. Sue, how much... tell on a, on a girl. <laughs> how, well, absolutely. How much of a problem are, are feral cats in Cheyenne? Is that a big issue? Do they cause problems? Yeah, there are feral cats all over the place. Um, there are cat colonies. I know there used to be one behind, like, oh, Applebee's over on that area. Um, so what we have is a community cat program where we do... If people bring them in or we go trap them bring them in, alter them, and do the ear thing. Also then put them back out where their chances of survival are, you know, much better than if, if we just had too many cats. I mean, right now we're full of cats, full of cats and kittens, by the way. Uh, we're always looking for foster people. Um, and we also have a barn cat program. So a lot of the cats that come in that are feral, um, we alter them, microchip them, vaccinate them. And then we have different farms and ranches who like to have barn cats. So take them there and they get to live in the barn and chase mice and do all kinds of good things. <laughs> now, as I sort of understand it, b barn cats typically are cats that maybe they're never going to be a lap cat, but they're good for hunting right. mice and stuff, right? 
Right. Absolutely. Now, in terms of uh, in terms of animal adoptions, how, how do we do on adoptions? Do we get to adopt most of the animals out? How many are euthanized? Um, I'm not going to be able to give you a number, but I can tell you that our, our live release rate is what we call it, and it's very high. We have like a 95, 96% live release rate on dogs mm-hmm. and about 94 on cats. I mean, these cats are just so prolific. It's, um, and we try very hard not to have to euthanize anything, but mostly... Um, if there's a behavior issue as well and it just cannot be rehabilitated or we don't have the staff to do that, those those animals um, would be euthanized. And it's, a hard, it's hard on staff. It's hard on somebody it who gets and loves animals. We have a group that takes care of the animals that, that meets once a week to discuss the behavior and temperament of different dogs or cats and, or their illnesses or has anybody been on the adoption list for them. And, um, you know, we have a counselor that joins us for those meetings because there's a lot of compassion fatigue in animal welfare and veterinarians are among the highest um, suicide group in the nation. Why is that? Because it's it's hard. It's hard hard gut-wrenching work and you end up having to do the things that um, that break your heart when you want to save animals and you know it's been hard over the years with some of the cases that we've had where you know it comes down to us having to euthanize an animal and then we're called killers for being the ones who had to do it when right. you know, many other things happen along the way to that pet before it ever came to us. Well, and, and here's a chance to plug spaying and neutering too. Uh, you really should. Right. So all of our animals that we have are spayed or neutered. Um, we also do a big fix program which is low cost and um, then some days we do a, a, a spay day which I get a sponsor to cover most of the cost for that is very low for the person to get their pet in to get spayed or neutered. I believe you also implant microchips, is that right? So that yep. every animal will have a microchip. You'll have that first set of vaccinations, the, the first rabies shot. And if we pick up an animal stray, it's still when it comes in, it still gets a rabies shot just because we need to know that it's not going to give a disease to any of the other animals that are already there before it. Um, so cats over seven months old are $10 and you still get all that. Dogs vary in price depending on size and age and breed or whether it's purebred. Kittens are one twenty-five, but again, um, it kind of just covers the cost of you know getting some of the older cats out. And we have great cats, great staff that just love the animals, and we're all excited when a certain pet goes home or finally went home, and we're so happy. And um, and I would like to point out too, we have a, an upcoming event October twenty-third called Dogtoberfest, which is a um, Dachshund Wiener Race in front of uh, uh, Freedom's Edge Brewery downtown. Okay. I've been speaking with uh, Sue Castaneda, CEO of the Cheyenne Animal Shelter. Uh, Sue, is, we have about three minutes left. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss or reiterate in terms of the negotiations with the city, the animal shelter in general, or any other topic? You know, I think it's going to work out okay. I think... Um you know, we've had great donors and great support over the years. Um, we also have a Shine Animal Shelter Foundation, which is run by a separate board. Um, money from the furball goes to the foundation. Any bequests and estates go there. And then what happens is they invest that money, and every month they write a check back to the animal shelter to help for sustainability at uh, 41500 So donors are doing a lot for the animals in this community, and we can't say enough how much we appreciate that. Um, really great people that love animals and uh, 
are very supportive of the shelter. We plan to do the furball again next year, too, so we're, we're looking at our next theme. I don't know what it'll be yet, but it'll be in April. So we're glad to get back on track with our, our biggest fundraiser of the year and a fundraiser as well. So a lot of stuff coming up. And you have an, I will not be the CEO after October 18th. Um, Brittany Tennant has been hired from Black Dog Animal Rescue to be our new CEO. And I couldn't be more pleased and happy. And uh, I think she's going to really take the organization forward. Okay. Sue, oh, I did have one final question. I know you guys have okay. been hit by COVID a couple times. How's that going these days? <laughs> you know, we've had it among the different staff like four or five times. Even I had it. So um, we just have to be careful, you know, try to. That's why we sort of instituted the adoption by appointment so we could control how many people were in there at a time. And so who knows with COVID? You just never know. Okay. I'd like to thank my guest on this segment. I've been speaking with Cheyenne Animal Shelter CEO, Sue Castaneda. Sue, we appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Bye. Have a good weekend. And a little better chance for rain and thunder late Monday into Tuesday. I'm day weather meteorologist Don Watzel. Are you one of those people who thinks it's okay to drive stone? I mean, what's the worst that can happen? You end up driving below the speed limit? It's no big deal, right? Wrong. The truth is, your reaction time slow way down when you're high. You not only put yourself in danger, but everyone around you. Talk about a buzzkill. Stop kidding yourself. It's not okay to drive high. If you've been using marijuana in any form, do not get behind the wheel. If you feel different, you drive different. Drive high, get a DUI. Paid for by NHTSA. AM 650 KGAB, Cheyenne's number one news talk radio station on the phone. I have Catherine Wisner, University of Wyoming, and I never get this title right, Cooperative Extension Officer for Laramie County. Did I get it this time? <laughs> it is Laramie County Extension. We kind of dropped the word cooperative. Oh, okay. Uh, so it's Laramie County Extension, and I am the county horticulturist. And you're here today to talk to us about growing hemp. I am. You know, and interesting enough, the last ad you had on the radio was about not driving when you're high on marijuana. So right. That was kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so the whole hemp thing is really kind of kind of an interesting roller coaster, and it's it's really a plant that you need to know how to grow at least a vegetable garden before you jump into this, and you know, study, 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 read up on it, and there's just so many potholes to growing any type of hemp, whether whether you're growing it for the oil seed for CBD for fiber, for the, the um, you know, there's four different types, and, and so you, you got to know what you're going to grow first. That helps. Then you got to find someone who's actually going to buy it from you. But the really tricky part here, Doug, is you've got to find someone who's going to be honest and not rip you off. Is that a problem? That is a huge problem. The, the fraud in this business is just astronomical. So you can get hurt really easy by dealing with the wrong people. You may think, oh, yeah, I can trust this person. You know, we get along and we've had some good conversations, but you need to do your research. You almost need to have an attorney involved that's, that's well-versed with the hemp industry and know who the bad actors are in this field. And there's, there's some pretty horrific stories out there about people 
bringing their crop to market and never getting paid for it. So how do you protect yourself? What, what's the first step? Well, the first step is, is really educate yourself on, on how to grow it because it's, it's depending on what you want to grow, it, it can either be difficult or, or not. You know, the whole CBD, growing plants for CBD oil, you know, we all know what a tumbleweed looks like, right? Uh-huh. Well, the plants for CBD oil look just like tumbleweeds. In fact, there was a field going south on I-25 into Colorado, just north of Wellington, that was full of CBD cannabis plants. And the first time I drove by it, it's like, wow, that's a weedy mess. Uh-huh. And, they, and they truly look like tumbleweeds. So... And that's a, that's a tricky one to grow because you really need to buy started plants or cuttings from someone else that started them. And they're a sticky plant because the CBD oil is, is held on these what's called trichomes, which are little hairs that stand up on the stems. And, and those top of those little hairs are a little bead of the CBD oil, the mm-hmm. raw CBD oil. So they're very sticky to deal with. And so harvesting them is tricky and you actually need to be out there either with very specialized expensive equipment or hand harvesting and and lopping off the plant at the base and then very carefully putting it in whatever you're hauling them around in so for the cbd oil it's it's really very tricky and then you've got to make sure you've got a buyer and or not so much a buyer but where are you going to go have this processed that's that's the really tricky thing because now that you've grown this plant and you've harvested this plant, who's going to process it for you? Who's going to take it to the next step? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of steps involved in this. And, and growing for CBD, you have to be out there almost daily doing hand weeding. And unless you're trying to grow it in a greenhouse, which is another whole ball game, and that's another whole tricky area. If you're trying to grow it for fiber, because fiber has got huge potential, but right now there's like a million pounds of hemp fiber just waiting to be processed, waiting mm-hmm. to be purchased. And so there's a huge backlog, in that, and that million pounds goes back to 2019, and that's how much it's been stored. And then making sure it's dry enough so it doesn't, doesn't get moldy and rot, that... Yeah, I mean, we got the perfect environment for drying things. So you, you literally, you cut it and bale it like hay, but you've got to make sure your moisture content is very low in it before you bale it. And then again, have a buyer, have someone ready for it. But right now, with a million pounds of surplus of hemp fiber waiting to be processed, it's really, really hard to get that sold right now. The, the CBD oil is still bringing pretty decent prices per kilogram. So they measure everything in the metric system. Still bringing good prices, but again, I'm going to go back to my opening remarks about this this can be a really dodgy business, and you've got to make sure you find someone to work with that's very honest and not going to rip you off. It sounds like it's a very labor-intensive crop. Would that be an accurate statement? That is extremely accurate. It is very, very labor-intensive. And for the people who are growing it in, greenhouses, and and you can't do it in a high tunnel. You've got to have a a full permanent structure greenhouse with all the the cooling and the lights and everything. So you have to have some knowledge on greenhouse growing. 
and and even in the inside the greenhouse, there's all sorts of pests. There's spider mites and mealybugs and white flies and probably a few others that I don't even aware of for Mayorana. But there's a lot of pests when you start growing it inside. And I just read a really interesting report off of CSU where they compare, and CSU, of course, is Colorado State University down in Fort Collins. They're, they did a research on the carbon emissions from growing hemp. So in other words, what is hemp's carbon footprint growing it in a greenhouse? Right. And according to CSU, growing one ounce of the crop is equivalent to burning up to 60 liters of petroleum. So 60 liters of gas. Wow. So it has a huge carbon footprint. I mean, huge. And that carbon footprint is is everything from the lights and powering those lights. Even though they're LED lights, you still have to have a lot of them. You still have to have the cooling and if you're trying to grow in the in the winter, there's that's daunting. Um, trying to keep it heated during the night and then cool it during the day, so you've got fans going, you've got lights going. So you're constantly cooling and venting, and, and humidity is not your best friend in a in a greenhouse or a high tunnel. So it's very labor intensive, and then there's a huge water resource. Hemp is not a dry land crop, and I have run into a couple people who think they can just go plow up that 40 acres and plant hemp and pay for the farm. And hemp needs as much water as as sweet corn. So for anyone who's grown a successful crop of sweet corn, you know you've got to pour the water to it. So it needs like two inches of water a week. So it's very, very water intensive. And when it's a baby plant, it doesn't like weeds and it doesn't compete well with, with weeds. And so you're out there, you will be out there hand hoeing and clearing out the weeds until it gets tall enough that it can shave the weeds out. Catherine, let me ask you this. I mean, with all the sketchy people in the business and it's a lot of work and it's sensitive to weeds, is it worth it even trying to grow this stuff? Well, I think if if a, a good farmer, and, I, and I, when I say a good farmer, one who really knows cropping systems. Uh-huh can get out there and, and ahead of time find a processor and find a buyer and do their research on those people to make sure that they're not dodgy and not going to rip them off. I think there's money to be made in the industry. You know, CBD oil is still very popular, and CBD oil for some people works and for some people it doesn't work, so it's it's kind of like however your body responds to it. Mm-hmm. So there's still a market out there for it, and it's still bringing really good prices. There's websites to go to. There are benchmark websites, and these are websites where you can find what the current price is and all the current latest, greatest information on them. These websites, these benchmark websites, price price benchmarks, they are not free, and they charge handsomely to belong to them. I'm looking at one that it's $1,500 to belong to this website to get information per year. And and you really have to treat it like a very serious business. And you have to to belong to these benchmark websites so you know 
what the current price is for CBD oil or if people are still buying oil seed or or buying um, um, seeds for grinding into flour or other food products or if there's even anyone out there right now that's buying the fiber. I mean, you, you really have to do a lot of upfront work and that upfront work is going to cost you some money because, again, these these websites aren't free and I think $1,500 per year per website is the going rate but they give you a ton of information and they help steer you in the right direction and they help you per, from making huge financial mistakes. Catherine, now as we speak, marijuana is still illegal in Wyoming. There are people working to change that, but as it stands, it's still illegal. This crop, hemp, is pretty, pretty well regulated to make sure people aren't growing pot. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. And you have to be licensed with the state of Wyoming before you can even till up the ground or buy seeds or buy any plants. And so you have to have the state of Wyoming's Department of Agriculture's approval first. And that license fee is $750. So it's not cheap. It's not cheap. And, and so now start adding up all the money. You, you really need to belong to this, um, to one of the hemp benchmark websites. So there's $1,500 there. Then $750 for just the license do you have the equipment? Do you have the knowledge? Are you going to grow it in a greenhouse? How big is a greenhouse? You know, it's for all the money and upfront costs. It's being small is really expensive, and you may not ever break even on that. And depending upon what you're buying and what you're trying to grow, the seeds are. If you're doing oil seed, then it's then the seed is priced per pound. And there's about 2,000, or excuse me, 20,000 seeds in a pound. But if you're doing it for cannabis or you're doing it for um, some of the other hemp's, it can range from either anywhere from a dollar a seed to $10 a seed. So you really have to be spot on with being able to start seeds, get them germinated, get them growing and, and have them healthy when you transplant them. So you, you really have to have some basic horticulture background. And so for people just to jump into it, yeah, it can be really expensive learning curve. Now, as I recall, when they were debating this in the legislature, and if I'm, if I'm right, I think the final bill includes this, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but they also will test your hemp to make sure it's not uh, above a certain THC level. Is that correct? Absolutely. And so if you're, if you're growing hemp for the oil seed or if you're growing it just for the seed for, for food purposes, they will go through your field and they're going to take cuttings and they're going to send those cuttings off to a lab to get them tested for the THC levels. You have to know when you're going to harvest. And so if you're saying, I'm going to harvest on September 25th, then two weeks before that, you need to have the inspector in your field to do the testing. So you really need to plan a month in advance to know when you're going to harvest to get the inspector in that field. So I would sort of infer from that that the THC level varies with when the plant is harvested. Is that accurate? Yeah, it is. And right now with this summer being as hot and dry as it is, 
you know, that the, the hemp plants don't like to be stressed. They don't like to be water stressed at all. And so on a day like today, where there's a little bit of a breeze out there, it's going to take more water to keep it from becoming stressed. Okay. And then there's no guarantee that it won't become stressed, even if you're pouring the water to it. So you've got to really manage what you're doing very, very carefully. And, you know, right now the prices for the seed, you know, the the seed oil and everything, it's kind of down a little bit. But, but at the same time, as long as you know your market and you're watching those prices like a hawk, and, and by the way, that's what farmers do. Any of the grain farmers, the wheat farmers, the corn, soybean, flax, I mean, you name your grain, those farmers watch that market like a hawk, so they know when when to take it in and sell it, or do I hold it longer? So you've so you got to watch that market and know what's going on. But if, you're, if your hemp tests too high with THC, it will be destroyed. So there goes a whole lot of money, a whole lot of money down the drain. And it's like any type of farming or ranching, it's always to gamble, and the weather is always going to be your wild card. So that's another thing. You have to learn to watch the weather and, and be able to see and predict what's going on so you can manage your fields better. Tricky Ta- stuff. Catherine, is our, is our climate well-suited to growing hemp? You know, I think up in the Torrington area, Wheatland, um, maybe even up in the Bighorn Basin, maybe Pine Bluffs area, probably. Probably just depends upon what you want to grow. So, and if you, and you've got to have water. This is not a dry land crop. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> so it sounds it sounds like you know I'm not I'm not in agriculture my grandparents were ranchers but I never really lived that life but it sounds like it's a pretty dicey crop. It it really is and you've got to be able to be willing to take a gamble and and live with that gamble. Is that true of other crops like say wheat or corn? Oh yeah, absolutely. I I've grown wheat in the past and you and you just watch the weather, you watch the clouds and and most of that wheat is harvested in July and that's when we get our biggest hailstorms. Yep. So it's real easy for a wheat farmer to get hailed out or a corn farmer who we don't harvest corn until October when it's dried down. And so you're watching that weather because if the hail hits your corn, you're going to have a reduced harvest. And, and so it's it, it's all really tricky stuff. So how, how does hemp, uh, in terms of, of the risk and difficulty of making a profit, how does that compare to wheat or corn? Well, I, I, think, I think you stand to make a lot more money with hemp. But there's no price supports, there's no government subsidies with hemp where there is with, with wheat and corn. So it's a high-risk, high-reward situation then. Yeah, it really is. And if you can find the right processor, the right buyer, then and you can make some money off of it, then you're golden. And a lot of people have become their own processors, if they can, if they can figure out how to do that. So, you know, if you can hold on to your product from the time you buy that seed till the time you sell the product, that's... That's really the person who's going to be on top of the game. 
Okay, I'm speaking with uh, Catherine Wisner from the Laramie County Extension Service. We're talking about growing hemp in Wyoming. Uh, by the way, if you have any questions or comments, we do have an open phone line, 632-3323-632-3323. Catherine, this has only been legal in Wyoming for a couple of years. I remember the legislature debating it, and I'm thinking maybe 2019, 2018. Uh, so obviously the Wyoming hemp industry has not had a long time to get underway. Are, are many people trying to grow this in Wyoming, or do we know? You know, right now I don't know. Uh, I know that the Wyoming Department of Agriculture finally got their hemp plan approved late 2019, I believe. So 2020 was really the first year. And I don't, I don't hear a lot of people growing it. I'm sure there's people out there trying, so it just it just depends yeah, where it, you're located. And again, water is king with this. It, 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 yeah. it also sounds like don't try and do it as, as a backyard garden type operation if you're planning to make any money. It, it really won't work. And if you want to do a backyard operation, then you, you absolutely have to go into a greenhouse and do it and keep a controlled indoor environment. And then that, again, Growing in a greenhouse is a whole new learning curve, and there's you can fail pretty amazing in a greenhouse by not monitoring that. That's a babysitting job. That's a 24-7 babysitting job, and I know down at the Potomac Gardens here in Cheyenne, they have someone who's on duty 24-7 with an alarm, and so if the greenhouse that that big new greenhouse goes below a certain temperature, the alarm goes off, and they've got to go in there and find out why and how to change that and bring the temperature back up so their plants don't die. So you're joined at the hip with this crop, especially if you're doing it inside. Catherine, now, maybe this is a silly question, but I'll ask, if you're growing it outside, do you have to, uh, do you have to watch out for people trying to steal your crop thinking you're growing marijuana? <laughs> that wouldn't surprise me. Especially if you're in one of the, the subdivisions and your neighbor kids spot what you're growing, mm-hmm. I, I would say it's a very high risk. Because to look at it, it looks the same, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, it all does. It all looks the same, except for the CBD oil plants, which look like tumbleweeds. So, <laughs> Catherine, uh, uh, outside of the amount of work that goes into it, are there any other misconceptions about growing hemp in Wyoming that you'd like to clear up? Well, again, the biggest myth I keep running into is that, oh, I can grow it dry land, because the myth is back east it grows in the borrow ditches and along the roads and in all sorts of places. Well, it's because there's enough water there, and back east gets a lot more water than we do. Mm-hmm. So that's the biggest myth I run into. The other myth is that this is the, the new cash cow and it's going to pay for the farm. Boy, you, do your homework. Absolutely do your homework. There, there is a book out there called American Hemp Farmer, Adventures and Misadventures in the Cannabis Trade by Doug Fine. And and it's, it's all about, you know, if anyone's interested in getting into this, this is his story, his roller coaster ride story of, of trying to get into the hemp industry. So American Hemp Farmer, Adventures and Misadventures in the Cannabis Trade. So that would be a fun one to read. Now, I know for a lot of crops in Wyoming, our growing season is a challenge. Is that a problem for the hemp crops? Could be. It could be. Um, hemp likes a longer growing season. And, you know, up to, you know, I've seen anywhere from 100 to 115 days 
all the way down to 85 days. And, you know, calling here in Wyoming is a wild card anyway. Yep. I've planted stuff uh, as early as the middle of May, and that's probably when you would want to get this in the ground, is middle of May, be ready to cover it. And then hope we have a fall like we are now and not a fall like we had last year where on September 8th last year we had an Arctic front come through and dropped to 27 degrees. Oh, wow. You know, so, <laughs> and, I, and I had a call from a gentleman during that period on, on like September 7th and we're watching this front come through and he was growing everything outside in containers and he had like a thousand plants and he had nowhere to put them oh, nowhere no, no and i'm like do you have a garage he's like no do you have a barn no i said what do you have as well i just have a small house i'm going start packing them in your house because <laughs> i don't have room and he was, he was looking for a greenhouse or a high tower or something to put them in and, and it's like i i couldn't i couldn't help him because i didn't know of any empty greenhouses that you could go park these thousand plants in. Catherine, I, I hate to cut you off. We're down to about 40 seconds. Is there anything you'd like to tell people that we haven't covered? Okay. Um, I just want to jump topics briefly. Sorry. Go ahead. Water your trees. It's hot. It's dry out. You need to water your trees so they can go into fall and winter well hydrated. Okay. A dry, droughty tree doesn't survive the winter as well. And for everybody who's listening that lives out in the county, stop mowing your prairie. Okay. Don't mow your prairie. Thanks, Catherine. Appreciate it. All right. You're welcome, Doug. Bye. Talk to you later. AM 650 KGAB, Cheyenne's number one news talk radio station.